somebody, listen, today is the hottest of all topics. We're talking about hell. Little pun there, Pansy didn't know where we were going with that. Uh, we're going to talk about hell. Um, uh, I heard a story about this man who was talking to his friend at work, and he was telling the man, he said, I, yesterday I plugged in this address to, to, to go find uh, this store. He said, I got so aggravated at the GPS, I just shouted out, go to hell. It ended up taking me to my in-laws. <laughs> Thank you. Come on. Listen, they don't get better, folks. They don't get any better. Uh, I'm reminded, and I, those that know me, uh, you know, I don't need anybody to laugh at my jokes. I think they're funny, and I will laugh at my own jokes. Uh, uh, but this little girl was in class one day in school, and her teacher overheard her and one of her friends talking about Sunday school. That week, and she was telling her what they learned, and that, that the Sunday school lesson was about Jonah and the well. And to which the teacher interrupted the little girl and said, Hey, listen, you need to know, it is physically impossible for a well to swallow a human being. Because though it's a very large mammal, they have small mouths. The little girl said, well, the Bible says that Jonah was swallowed by a well. The teacher got irritated. She said, well, I'm just telling you, a well cannot swallow a man. It's physically impossible. The little girl, she's adamant. She says, well, I'll tell you what. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah. The teacher said, well, what if Jonah went to hell? She said, well, then you could ask him. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> hell is not a subject we talk about a lot anymore. Uh, and if you grew up in my era, we talked about hell a whole lot. I mean, it was almost used as a scare tactic. Like, hey, 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 listen, don't be going out, running around, doing things you don't because you're going to go to hell. It was almost used as a scare tactic. Anybody know what I mean? And, and, and see, uh, you, anybody remember this, the hell houses? They were the Christian's version of a haunted house where they, you would walk them through. There'd be different scenarios, but the end result was the same. You're going to hell. That's the end result. If you don't get things straightened out. We, in fact, walked to our church, man, years ago. My mom and dad put on an incredible drama here called uh, Heaven's, Flame, or Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Powerful drama. I mean, uh, it, it was very powerful. But basically, when I was growing up, man, what they would do in VBS, what they would do with these hell houses, with what they would do with these different things, here was their tactic to try to scare the hell out of you. I mean, that was their basic tactic. And as a kid, I didn't know a lot, but I didn't know this much. I did not want to go to hell. I knew that. I've said, it seems like I've said hell a whole lot today, haven't I? A hell a lot. <laughs> no, so calm down, calm down. <laughs> that hit me funny. Uh, here's the thing I know. I, all those they were done with great intentions. I mean, the whole purpose and the whole focus was get someone to think about where they're going to spend eternity. And so they were done with great intention because here's the truth. Nobody wants to go to hell. I mean, nobody. You can joke about it. You can play dumb about it. But no one wakes up in the morning saying, hey, you know what? Today would be a great day to die and go to hell. Nobody. And if I was to ask, hey, do you want to go to hell? 
Of course, people now you might get that person that, oh yeah, that's where all my friends are gonna be. But that's when it comes down to, to realistic thoughts, nobody would say, yeah, I wanna go. But here, here Pew Research did a survey a, a few years back. Here's what they found. 58% of Americans believe in hell. Only 58%. That means, uh, you know, what, what, do, what is the math there? 42%, 62%, whatever it is. 42%. Don't believe in hell. 73% of Americans believe in heaven. So why is there almost a 20% 20, 20 gap in the people, Americans, that believe in heaven than there is that believe in hell? Because here's the truth. We all want to believe this, that when we die, when our loved one dies, there's some magical place they go to. There's something better. So more people believe in heaven than they do to hell. Nobody believe that, wants to believe that the person, that, that anybody goes to hell, especially good people. Right? Here's the issue. Most people, even Christians, don't really understand or know what hell is. They know what they've been taught or know what they've been told. And I'm not sure who said this, but I heard this said years ago. said, if I were the devil, my number one strategy would be to convince people that I'm not real. Well, I would say his second number one strategy would be to convince people that hell isn't real. Or at least it's not as bad as what it's been made out to be. So why are we concluding this hot topic series on the subject of hell? Because if you're taking notes, this is important. What you believe about eternity will determine how you live today. What you believe is going to happen. What you believe about the afterlife is going to affect how you live today. If you believe that there's nothing really after death, then you're going to live however you want. You're going to live selfishly. It's going to be all about you right now and, and, and in the moment. But if you believe that you were created for on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose, that there's a hell to shine and a heaven to gain, you're going to live your life differently if that's what you believe. What you believe about eternity will determine how you live today. Uh, of those 58% that do believe in hell, they generally believe this, and this may be some of you, that, that hell is reserved for the really, really, really bad and evil people. Like people like terrorists, rapists, child molesters, murderers, politicians. I'm kidding, just a little bit. But that's what we really believe. It's reserved for that. In Matthew 7, um, Jesus talks, he, he, he talks about a lot of the stuff that we like to preach about. And a lot of stuff that gets put on T-shirts, mugs, bumper stickers. Uh, that whole Matthew 7, one, verses 1 through 12, he, he does the, the, the scripture that gets misinterpreted a lot. Don't judge and you won't be judged. He talks about that. He says, don't look uh, at the speck of dust in your brother's eye while you've got a log in your own eye. He said, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock, the door will be open. He talks about how an earthly father knows how to give good gifts. If that's the case, how much more a heavenly father? He says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we talk a lot about those verses in our culture today. Those are great talking points. Those are great messages. That's verses 1 through 12. 
But verse 13, he goes into something that we don't hear a lot today. Check out what he says, Matthew 7, 13. For the gate is wide, the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The New Living translates it like this. For the highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. The key word is, it's wide for those that choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Jesus made that, makes that statement over 2,000 years ago. He says, hey, the highway to hell, it's wide. There's a lot of lanes down that road. The traffic flows smoothly down that road. You can get there really quick, but heaven, but light, that road's narrow. And there's no way you can get on that road unless you intentionally get on that road. You're not just going to accidentally wander on that road. There has to be some intentionality behind it. Jesus spoke those words. And I believe the moment he began to tell people, hey, this is what hell, and this is the road to heaven, that Satan began to whisper lies into the ears of people. And one of the lies he would tell is there is no hell. It's just a metaphor. It's just symbolic. That's all it is. Or if he can't convince you of that, he'll go to lie number two. It's only for really bad people. No, it's only for, and if that doesn't work, then he gets people, even Christians, to say this. If God is so good, if God is so loving, if he is so full of mercy and grace, why is there a hell in the first place? Man, can I be quick, honest? I think that question there is a great starting point today. Why does hell exist? Why does hell exist? Well, one, if you're taking notes, why hell exists? It exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. That's the number one reason why hell exists. Our, our Easter drama uh, that we do here, Centuries, uh, we've got a, a two or three scenes where we've, we've got Satan in them, and it can get very scary, and we warn parents and we warn people uh, about those scenes. And we've had people, why do you portray Satan like that? Why do you portray him so evil and so mean? I'm like, because he is. See, our culture, our society portrays Satan as this guy that wears a red suit, got a tail, little horns on his head and a pitchfork, and just walk around and trying to get you to do bad stuff here and there. The truth is this. Satan is the personification of evil. Here's what the Bible calls Satan. The prince of darkness, destroyer, deceiver, father of lies, the dragon, dark angel, your adversary, the tempter, the thief. Let me tell you this. Satan is the author of every addiction. He is the author of every abuse, every rape, every murder, every child that gets molested, every school shooting, every suicidal thought. He is the dealer of all pain, shame, regret. That's who Satan is. He's not this little guy we made him out to be. 
His whole thing, the Bible says this, here's what Satan's goal is for you. Steal, kill, and destroy you. That's his purpose. He's a deceiver. And here's what John says about Satan's final days. Revelations 20.10. And the devil who deceived them, deceived who? You, me, our spouses, our friends, our co-workers, the people in our neighborhoods. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the first reason hell exists, to, for God to deal righteously with Satan. Now, before, don't bring up the second reason, because the second reason is where it gets complicated. The second reason hell exists, bring that up, for God to deal righteously with unbelievers. That's hard to swallow. I mean, we can get behind Satan and his demons being thrown into hell. But if we take the Bible seriously, it gets complicated because that means my neighbor that lives right across the road or down the street from me, the one that would give you the shirt off his back, the one that has mowed my yard, the one that's done all these nice things, what you're saying is that person, if they don't know Jesus, that's hard, ain't it? Anybody remember just this past May, Uvalde, Texas, shooting took place. Uh, killed 19 children and two adults. Everyone in America was calling for justice, for someone to pay for this tragedy. They weren't calling for justice for the 18-year-old the kid that shot it that killed these people. They were also calling for justice from law enforcement that delayed going in. Y'all remember that? This past week in Moscow, Moscow, Idaho, four University of Idaho students stabbed to death. People are calling for justice. Somebody's got to pay for this horrific crime, right? What about, what about, you remember a few couple months ago, I think it was in October, the daycare workers in Mississippi that had the scream mask on that terrified the kids? I mean, we saw an all-out outcry for justice. Somebody's got to pay for what they did to those kids. And the unifying voice on school shootings or a child being abused or murder, rape, or other injustice in the world, the, the, the unifying cry is this, somebody has to pay justice, right? Yet when it comes to God... Let's go at it from a different angle. I'm going to ask a question. I want you to participate. How many believe that God is full of love, mercy, grace, he's righteous and holy? If you believe that, raise your hand. Yeah, absolutely. We want a God of grace and mercy, a God of love, a God that's righteous and holy. But when it comes to a God that's just, If we're being honest, we want a God that kind of winks at our sin, overlooks our sin. But here's what we've got to understand. It's impossible for God to be holy without being just. It's impossible. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how we were created in the image of God. 
But somewhere along the line, especially in this culture, what we've done is we've made God in our image. Why have we done that? Because if we make God in our image, well, it justifies our sin. It justifies our lifestyle choices. It justifies the way we want to do things if we make God in our image. So, yes, God is full of love. God is full of mercy, full of grace. He's holy. But he is also just, and hell is real, and it exists to deal righteously with those that have rejected Christ, God's Son. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1 and 8. He will bring perfect and full justice to those who don't know God and on those who refuse to embrace the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Can I tell you, this is not a fun subject to talk about. Uh, it doesn't bring me joy to get up here and teach and talk about this, but also say this, as a pastor, as your pastor, I don't love you or truly care for you if I withhold from you the full truth of what the Bible says. And while I want to be liked, I enjoy being liked, I enjoy to hear oh, that's my pastor, listen, I would rather be honest and tell you, hey, this is what the God, God says about you and about where you're at in your life. I would rather be honest and you not like me for that than for you to love me, but then stay and spend your life on the wide road that leads to hell. If you've got a Bible, turn me to Luke chapter 16. If you don't, I'm going to bring it up on the screen. Jesus is about to give us a glimpse into what the afterlife really looks like and sadly what it's going to look like for a lot of people. Maybe some in this room or watching online. Luke 16, starting with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Let's stop right there. Because when Jesus says this guy was dressed in purple and fine linen he lived in luxury those colors purple fine linen the people understood that jesus was saying this guy is filthy rich he's elon musk jeff bezos rich i mean he's got all the money he could ever want he's rich rich he says this at his gate was a beggar named lazarus covered with sores longing to eat watch this what fell from the rich man's table he was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. The beggar longing to eat scraps from the rich man's table. Do you remember the story back in Matthew 15 where this Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and she said, Jesus, I need you to heal my demon-possessed daughter. And Jesus kind of makes a statement that if you don't know the context, it would seem very rude. Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And the woman replies back, though, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Both that story and the story of Lazarus, here's what you got to understand. People with this kind of money, with this kind of rich, what they would do, they would take bread, and they would use it literally to cleanse or wash their hands. They would take that bread, and the crumbs that fell on the table, crumbs that fell on the ground, the servant would come in, rake those up, and throw them out to the dogs. And so what Lazarus was saying, hey, I'll take what you've cleaned your hands with. I'm that hungry. I'm that hungry. 
Same, same concept in both verses. Even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And here Lazarus is begging. Just give me the crumbs that you washed your hands with. Verse 22, and the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, let's, let's stop right there. Because this word gets translated wrong. Uh, it gets translated sometimes as hell. But, uh, what is Hades? Hades is this Greek word that's used in the New Testament. The equivalent of this in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word sheol. Sheol. S-H-E-O-L. It's the same thing. Same word. What is Hades? I'm going to be very honest. I don't know exactly what it is, but I do know it's kind of the best way I can describe it. Hades is like a purgatory, except you can't get prayed out of this place. It's an in-between landing place between where if you don't know Christ, you're in Hades until the judgment. That's where you're, you're at. It's a place that if you die without knowing Jesus, because later on you read in Revelation 20, 14, where death and Hades get thrown into the fire, get thrown into hell. So Lazarus was with Abraham, and the rich man is in Hades. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up, saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Apparently, there in Hades, there's this chasm. Think about this, where the rich man could see what could have been had he had made different choices. Apparently, there's this chasm. You've got him over here in Hades, and then he can see the Lazarus sitting in Father Abraham's lap. Look what he says. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water. Cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. If you read the, continue reading that story, it talks about how him, him saying, listen, I beg you, send Moses, send one of the prophets back to tell my brothers about this place so they don't come here. But the Greek word that gets translated to hell, again, is not the word Hades. Hades is a temporary place. The Greek word that gets translated to hell is the word Gehenna. comes from the valley of Hinnom, which is on the outskirts of Jerusalem. I actually got to see this place. Uh, it's a valley that's marked the western and southern edges of Jerusalem. In the valley of Hinnom, was, it was often the site where people would sacrifice their children to Baal. In fact, one of Judah's kings, King Manasseh, sacrificed some of his sons to Baal there. The Valley of Hinnon or Gehenna became this place where all the garbage got dumped. All the sewage ran there. And there was this fire that continually burned, burning through the garbage, burning through the sewage, and this stench would rise out of the Valley of Gehenna. What is hell? this place where the burning never stops. The flame, there's suffering, there's unending pain. One commentary calls it the land of no more good. Hell. No more beauty, no more friendship, no more laughter, no more peace, no more joy, no more hope, 
No more second chances. And that's why the rich man is crying out and pleading to Father Abraham. Please send Lazarus to my brothers. Warn them of this terrible plague so they won't come here. I love them so much. I do not want them to experience what I'm experiencing. And the truth is we make light of hell. And again, we'll say things like, but at least I'll be there with my friends. Or, man, it's going to be one big party in hell. But according to Jesus' description, there is no party in hell. And though you are surrounded by a lot of other people, you feel isolated and alone. It is, a, it is full of darkness. There is no light. There is no hope. There is no peace. There is no joy. And there are no second chances. In fact, in Revelation, an angel gives a vivid description of what happens to those that are separated from Christ. Revelation 14, verse 10, 11. They too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night. Hell is not just a metaphor or some symbolism. It's a very real place that Jesus talked about. But when it comes to this story of Lazarus and the rich man... I believe there are four lessons that we can learn from this story. The first one we can learn is this, and this is important. The rich man was fully awake and aware. The rich man knew what was happening. He knew what was going on. He knew that what had happened could not be undone now. There was no going back. He could not change where he was. There was no reversing it. Somehow he knew this was his life forever. The second thing, thing we can learn from the rich man is this. The rich man knew his eternal destiny was sealed. Sealed. Again, it could not be undone. This was it. This was it. The third thing we can learn. The rich man knew this. He had been judged fairly. When you read the story, hey, you know that BK, because when you read the story, we just read it. He talked about the pain he was in. He talked about, hey, please send, uh, send Lazarus to just dip his finger in some water because the thirst is excruciating. I'm in pain mentally, emotionally. Not once does he say, God, this isn't fair. He knew he had been judged fairly. Somehow he had settled with himself the fact that his time on earth had been filled with a lot of selfishness, a lot of me, 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 and that he never, ever once thought he should consider surrendering his life to Jesus. The fourth thing we learn from this story, the rich man pleaded for someone to tell his family about Jesus. Please see some, send someone to tell them. This road they're on, it's wide. Man, there's a lot of people on it. It seems fun right now. But the end result is where I'm at right now. PK, why are we talking about such a 
heavy subject? Why are we ending this series on such a heavy subject? Because what you believe about eternity will determine how you live today. What you believe happens to you after you die shapes how you live today. One of the surveys I looked at showed this statistic about Christians. 92% of Christians believe in heaven. I actually thought that number was low. If I'm a Christian, I believe in heaven. Only 79% actually believe in hell. Christians, followers of Jesus. Why is the belief in heaven so much higher than hell among fellow believers? Here's my thing, because if we really believe that there was a hell in the afterlife awaiting the people that we love and care about and do life with, we would be like the rich man begging, send someone to tell them about this place. This past Wednesday night, Pastor Bob spoke. And I'm going to tell you this. I, Wednesday nights, if you're missing Wednesday nights, I'm telling you, you're missing probably the, one of the most powerful nights of the week when you're hearing stories about lives that have been transformed. Pastor Bob shared his story. And I sit there and I thought, this guy needs to write a book. He needs to write a book. But he gets to one place uh, talking about, he shared this story about a young man that he would see every day. Bob lived downtown in the metropolis of Dayton. (laughs) Upstairs apartment. That's when you know you got big money, when you can live downtown Dayton. But there was a family that owned a store right across the road from where he lived. And their son would sit out there every day and was a sign spinner. You know what I'm talking about? Spin the signs. And, and, and if you know Bob, this doesn't come as a surprise to me. But Bob said, I would walk by there and I'd stop and I'd just dance with him. Bob said one day while he was home, he said he's sitting there in his apartment and he hears screaming and sirens. He said he immediately went outside to see what was going on and said, I couldn't really tell what was actually going on, but I could see the boy's mom just screaming and crying and people around her trying to calm her down. He would later find out that the young man that he saw every day on the street spinning signs hung himself in his parents' store. As I heard Bob tell this story, I immediately made a note in my phone. Maybe we don't believe in hell because it keeps us from feeling guilty about the sign spinners we encounter every day. Maybe we don't really want to believe in hell because then we won't feel guilty that we don't share our story. We don't share our faith. We don't share what Jesus has really done for us. Maybe we don't want to believe in hell because then we don't have to feel guilty about the co-worker that we work with or the cashier we see every morning or the person we go to school with or our neighbors. 
Because I am convinced of this. I have said this over and over. And Bob alluded to it Wednesday night. Every person you run into has a story. And every story matters to the heart of God. Every person. Every, you have never locked eyes with anyone that does not matter to the heart of God. Ever. Well, what about, I don't care. You name somebody, and I'll tell you this, they matter to the heart of God. That neighbor that gets on your nerves, or the neighbor that you enjoy talking to, that person at school that nobody talks to, or that one at school that everybody wants to be friends with, that single mother that just gave birth her fourth child and has none of the dads in her life. That addict that can't seem to get it together. That person that seems like they've got it all together. That man that or woman that is barely holding it together. Their stories matter to the heart of God. And hell is real. And we as followers of Jesus better start taking it more serious than we have. But we don't really want to believe that people, especially good people, go to hell. And that's why we'll have people write books and we'll buy books that declare love wins, saying that, hey, and at the end of it all, everybody gets into heaven. Why? Because we don't want to believe. Second Thessalonians 1, 8, 9. He will bring perfect, full justice to those who don't know God and on those who refuse to embrace the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And they will suffer the penalty of eternal destruction banished from the Lord's presence. What we believe about eternity sets the course for how we live our life today. What we believe about eternity determines how we interact with those people every day in our lives. And you may be sitting here thinking, well, Kelly, Pastor, I don't know if I want to believe in a God that would send good people to hell. Here's the problem with that. None of us are good. By nature, we're not good. You don't have to teach a toddler to lie or to be selfish. Come on. Why? Because by nature, none of us are good. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we're selfish, we sleep around. By nature, we're not good. I have a feeling if we were ever allowed one moment to stand in the absolute holiness of God, we would find ourselves like the prophet Isaiah. When he stood in the holiness of God, he said, this woe is me. I am ruined. In other words, I thought I was good. I thought I was a good person, but now that I stand in the immense holiness of God, I am nothing. I am a sinful. He goes on and says, I am a man of sinful lips. I dwell a bunch of, uh, uh, among a bunch of sinful people. Guys, we have to come to the conclusion in reality. I'm sinful. I'm not as good as what I 
I've led myself to believe. So yes, God is holy, God is good, God is just, God is righteous, but he cannot be holy and righteous without being just. Here's the thing. God's not only just. He is also love. And when I say God is love, I'm not talking about the emotion, the feeling, what we say is love. God just, God doesn't just do love. God is love. Just like Satan is the personification of evil, God is the personification of what love is. How do you know that? John 3.16 tells us. For God so loved the what? I said this two weeks ago. I didn't say, for God so loved those that had it all together. For God so loved those that got it right. For God so loved the good people. No. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That, not, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. How much does he love you? Before you even chose him, Romans 5, 8, Christ proved God's passionate love for us by dying in our place while we were still lost and ungodly. Jesus tells us enemy Satan's tactics I mean John 10 10 the thief comes only to steal kill and destroy but then he adds but let me tell you why I've come I've come that you may have life have it to the full I love the way the passion paraphrases this a thief has only one thing in mind he wants to steal slaughter and destroy but I have come to give you everything in abundance more than you expect life in its fullness until you overflow Jesus' heart for the lost. In Luke, Jesus begins to tell these three stories that begin to talk about this is how much I love people. This is how much I'm willing, what I'm willing to do. And one of the stories is this, Luke 15, 3. Jesus says, if a man has a hundred sheep, one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Listen to me, there's some of you here today. There's some of you that are watching online. You need to hear this. He's coming to find you. Thank you. When people tell me, well, I found Jesus. Uh, no, no, you didn't find Jesus. He wasn't lost. He came looking for you. He found you. That's why I have a hard time. The, the mindset I grew up with, people, you think, Kelly, you think Jesus would walk into that bar with you? You think Jesus would go to that crack house, that place right there? I absolutely do. Because if, if, if that's where I'm at, Jesus is going to come looking for me there. Jesus ain't going to stand on the outside door, but I'm just waiting on them to come on out. I'm telling you, Jesus is worse than Dog the Bounty Hunter. He comes hunting. He comes looking. There's some of you, I'm telling you, Jesus didn't come for the perfect. 
Are you hearing me? Jesus didn't come for those that have it all together. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for sinners like you and me. He came for the sick. He came for the lost, the broken, the hopeless, the people that fall down, the people that can't seem to get it right. That's who he came for. Make it a little more personal. Came for the person that steals from their family so they can go get high again. Came for the person that doesn't know what love is. But they want it so desperately that they go from bed to bed or relationship to relationship from guy to guy or girl to girl or whatever trying to fill the void. He came for you. He came for the kid that sits by themselves and thinks about ending it all almost on a daily basis. He came for the father or the mother that has screwed up so many times that they've lost custody of their kids. He came for the person that comes in every Sunday and sits in here like they've got it all together, puts a smile on their face, but inside they're dying and they're lost and they feel lonely. for the young man or young woman that's wrestling so much with their sexual identity. That's who he came for. When I grew up, the goal was to scare the hell out of people. But the reason I want to see people surrender their life to Jesus is not just to avoid a very real hell. I want people to experience the goodness, the grace, the love of God. I want to see them live a life of purpose. Stand with me across this room. No heads bowed, no eyes closed today, folks. Because let me tell you, if you need what I'm about to offer, you're in no better company than to raise your hand because you're surrounded by people that want to fight for you, fight with you, that'll get dirty and get in the ditches right with you. Sharon, if you'll come on and pray with me. Grab that mic. There are those here I know. You don't really have a relationship with Jesus. But you felt him drawing you today. You may not even, even know what this is about, but you felt something pulling you. Something saying, this is what you need. You've tried everything else. You've done everything else. This is what you've been looking for. This is what you've been trying to, you, everything else to fill the emptiness and void in your life. This is it. And listen, some of you, I grew up in the South, so I know there are many of us. We prayed a prayer when we were young, but our lives did not reflect any change. But right now, you know God is calling you. 
I'm going to ask Sheridan to sing the verse in the course of this song. Prayer team, I want you to begin to pray because I believe God is wooing some people and there are, going to, there are people in here that are going to surrender to him today. Sing that verse. Do you think? 